Welcome to the Three P's of Cancer podcast, where we'll discuss prevention, preparedness, and progress in cancer treatments and research. Brought to you by the University of Michigan Rogel Cancer Center. I'm Scott Redding. In this episode, Rogel Cancer Center senior writer and public relations representative Ian Dembski sits down with Dr. Gautam Narla, Chief of Genetic Medicine in the Department of Medicine at the University of Michigan Medical School, to discuss how the COVID-19 pandemic has affected cancer research. I thought we might start by just having you tell me a little bit about your uh, research program and what questions you're trying to answer. I'm a professor of medicine here at the University of Michigan, and my research laboratory focuses on the development of novel small molecule therapeutics to turn back on tumor suppressor proteins for the treatment of cancer. And we're specifically interested in protein phosphatase 2A, uh, which is a tumor suppressive enzyme uh, that dephosphorylates many key oncogenic proteins. Um, and so it gets inactivated in a broad range of cancers, and we're trying to develop pharmaceutically tractable approaches to reactivate it therapeutically. And what tools, uh, sort of techniques, do you use to answer those questions? So, for example, if someone was to walk into your lab on a given day, what might they see your lab members doing? Yeah, so in terms of things we do in the lab on a daily basis, it kind of spans the spectrum from cell-based assays, um, biochemical assays, testing enzymatic function of both normal and mutant proteins, uh, testing those then in cellular systems using lentiviruses and CRISPR-based approaches, um, and then trying and carrying them all the way through into mouse models of the disease, whether that be xenograft models or avatar or patient-derived xenografts or genetically engineered mouse models. And kind of collaboratively, we do a lot of chemistry as well as structural biology that kind of flows into the lab in the form of new compounds and new structures for us to analyze. Can you take us back earlier this year when the university announced that uh, research labs are gonna have to close down due to COVID? And you know, what was that like for you and your lab members? So clearly we were all um, glued to the news with the announcement of COVID-19 and the subsequent restrictions placed upon doing biomedical research uh, by the university, of course, rightfully uh, so given the pandemic nature of the virus. And at first it was a a major adjustment. And I think obviously you kind of went from going at a hundred miles per hour to going to zero. Um, and people had to first uh, go back and, and stop working and figuring out how to balance their personal lives and all of the impact COVID had on them personally. And I think for a lot of lab members in my group, that took a couple of weeks, you know, to get to that sense of safety in their own homes from this pandemic virus. And then it was after that, a sense of, for many of us, loneliness of feeling not connected to our community, both the university community our research colleagues here, um, as well as our lab mates and, and colleagues in the lab directly. Um, and so a lot of what we tried to do was find ways to kind of mitigate that. So having virtual lab meetings, virtual journal clubs, virtual happy hours and check-ins and things to try to really uh, deal with some of that isolation that COVID-19 created. How did it affect sort of the research projects that you might have had in progress or perhaps things involving mouse models or other, you know, cellular cultures, things that you guys were working on? Yeah, I think, I think that uh, clearly it was a lab-to-lab based decision about what needed to be completely shut down and what needed to be wound down. I think given the nature of, of what we were hearing, we were a little bit more um, 
firm about it. And so all the cell-based assays were just stopped. Uh, any cell line that had been generated that was unique, um, we froze down uh, multiple into multiple different places. Uh, and then we were fortunate we didn't have any ongoing efficacy-related animal studies that required multiple dosings to reach an endpoint. And so we really went into bare-bones colony maintenance then just to keep the current animal, um, you know, uh, transgenic strains uh, alive and well. During that period when your lab wasn't sort of physically able to get together, physically able to work in the lab, can you tell me a little bit about sort of how your research efforts changed or whether there were any sort of creative opportunities to work in new and different ways that you guys discovered? I think the things we're able to do differently or more creatively is one is we have a tendency to generate large amounts of data and not have time to actually sit down with it and think about it perhaps as deeply as, as we might want to at times. And so I think there's a lot of just pulling out old data and saying, wow, this was really neat. Maybe this could go in a paper or this could be a new project and things. So I think people really revisited some of their existing data in new ways. I think people in general read more of the literature. I think unfortunately in our you know, hectic days that sometimes falls towards the lower end of what we do, reading new papers. And so I know a lot of the graduate students and postdocs read a lot more papers. Um, and we're able to come up with some new ideas and new new projects and insights that they now are able to execute on now that we're returning to a new sense of normal. Was there anything interesting that you guys found going back in your data that maybe you hadn't analyzed yet or things that have spurred some future work? One of the things, for example, are there's a series of mutations in this phosphatase uh, that are, are um, occur at the same amino acid that we've been studying but are different. Um, than the ones we had actually functionalized. And we actually realized that some of those mutations occur in very specific tumor types and therefore might point to very different biology than the ones we studied. And we've already started to make some of those mutants in relevant cell lines. And consistent with our hypothesis, interestingly, it does seem they have a very divergent biology, even though they're at the identical amino acid uh, level. Additionally, you know, we had some small molecules that we had been screening that were actually inactive, and so we kind of put them aside, but it turns out they might actually be almost dominant negatives on the target, and that turned out to be a potentially interesting new tool for us to use in the lab now. Uh, what do you mean by dominant negatives? I'm not familiar with that term. When we look at, for example, small molecules that bind to a target, Ian, you can either turn the target on or you can turn the target off. Um, we're looking for ones that turn it on, but from just a chemical biology and tool perspective, the ones that turn it off can be highly specific tools for us to use. And so these molecules turn the protein off, actually, instead of on. And in fact, what I mean dominant negative is we co-incubate them with the active ones. They actually prevent the active ones from working. So they're not just total loss of function. They also antagonize the active molecules in their function. So you might be able to use those molecules in future experiments to, to do what? To validate the specificity of the ones we're trying to develop. In other words, if you have a molecule that's almost structurally identical, but does the opposite of the one that activates it, and you can compete out the activity with that same molecule in the cell, the likelihood that any biology you're seeing is an off target is incredibly small. So it's a powerful tool for validation. Great. You know, now the research facilities have sort of reopened at U of M, but for somebody who isn't f familiar with the sort of protocols and sort of what the, what the new reality looks like, can you explain a little bit about 
what your lab looks like today compared to you know before COVID and how things are different? Yeah, so there's a couple of um, significant differences. Um, one is we used to have a number of undergraduates um, at different levels of training, sophomores, juniors, and seniors who were in the lab. And right now, uh, undergraduates and volunteers are, are not allowed back in the lab. So the composition of the members in the lab have changed. Um, additionally, clearly, we need to maintain social distancing. Um, and so the number of individuals in the lab at any given moment is about 50% plus lower than I would normally see when I would walk around and talk to members of my lab. Uh, and additionally, we've gone to, as, as needed by protocol and mandate, uh, shift-based work so that people aren't overlapping uh, in the times in which they're working. Um, so for many postdocs and graduate students, that's meant less physical time in the lab and so they've had to be in some ways more efficient uh, in the time that they have in order to get the same amount of work that they'd like done. You know, I've read some articles and seen some other comments from some other uh, faculty members. Do you see this, the way this is affecting undergraduates as sort of having a, a bigger effect on their sort of scientific careers or direction? You know, I, I hope that this won't last for a long enough that it will have a long-term impact on undergraduates' desire to do biomedical research and, and medicine. Actually, what I do hope is once it's appropriate uh, from a safety perspective that they'll return in greater numbers than ever because they'll realize that the only way we'll ever deal with these pandemics is not through politics, but by through medicines and by science. And, and, and great hospital systems like our own. So my hope is longer term, it will be good, Ian, for biomedical research and, and, and med clinical medicine. But in the short term, it definitely creates challenges. In fact, I think the group that's the most perhaps vulnerable are our graduate students where there's a very finite time they have in the lab um, and they have a set of expectations associated with it um, that will be more difficult to meet. And then just maybe taking a step back uh, a little bit further, um, can you reflect maybe on, you know, based on your own experiences or other cancer researchers that you've known and talked to about sort of how COVID is impacting the cancer research community more generally? I think that many of us who have ongoing collaborations with colleagues, you know, have come to a standstill and in some places in even harder ways than our own in the particularly hard-hit areas, for example, of New York and others. Uh, I think as a community, there's significant uh, numbers of meetings in which we're able to gather together uh, and discuss new ideas. Uh, while Zoom is a wonderful platform or blue jeans at some level, I still think face-to-face -face interactions are critical for starting new projects and collaborations. And many of our major and cancer meetings have been canceled, as you know or have gone fully virtual, which doesn't allow for much as much of that networking and socializing. Um, and I think therefore some of the germination of those new ideas and collaborations are, have been affected. Yeah, I mean, I think to a lot of people out there in the general public or our patients we see at the Cancer Center, you know, they know that people are conducting research into cancer, but for them, it's just kind of a very nebulous abstract thing. So I think, you know, anything that we can share or talk about that sort of helps people to understand sort of specifically what this means for actual cancer researchers or to actual labs can be really helpful. So I don't know if you have any thoughts on how this is affected, affecting sort of people, faculty working on the ground and other 
other lab members or sort of important takeaways or sort of lessons that might be learned from this overall experience? Yeah, I mean, clearly, I think there is research that's very basic and mechanistic that's fundamental in the longer term to the discovery of new drugs and treatments for our cancer patients here at the Rogel Cancer Center. I would tell you that there's also more immediate work that is kind of in the later stages, which we hope will get to the clinic in the next, say, two years. And so if we think of a two-year timeline for one of our cancer patients, and now we've had a delay of a year, then effectively a drug that we don't know, but if it was effective, efficacious, and safe, then it would be a delayed a year to get to our patients. And I think those are the tangible things that we're really struggling with. I mean, we do a good amount of drug development in my group and collaboratively in the cancer center here. Um, and we have that sense of urgency because we're getting closer to the clinic with some of these small molecules. And there's no doubt that this period has slowed that process down. Have you seen like postdocs or graduate students or other members of the lab sort of maybe coming together in new ways or working with each other, you know, outside of that lab context in new ways that, that was sort of forced upon them virtually or creative uh, problem solving on their part? I mean, one of the things that always amazes me about our students and our postdocs and such is the resilience in the face of adversity. And I mean, to answer your question directly, and I think they have come together in new ways. I mean, one thing I've noticed is there's a lot of, and this might sound paradoxical, more socializing. And what, what I mean by that is it's almost the isolation created by being alone that makes them get on more Zoom calls together, talk to one another together, run experiments by one another, and such. And I've seen a lot of that more cross-pollination and discussion than previously where they're much more kind of with their blinders on to get their work done and such. Um, and so in some ways it's, it's, it's created, I think, new opportunities to communicate and socialize, uh, albeit virtually oftentimes. Well, is there any, anything that we didn't touch on as it sort of relates to sort of what your lab has experienced and sort of the the scramble to get everything shut down and then this weird transition period and now sort of ramping back up that you think um, might be interesting or important for folks to understand? No, I mean, I think the logistics of it, we've gone over, I think some of the challenges and opportunities it presents. I think one of the unknowns and that's the hardest thing for us to deal with is, as people, I think is the unknown is whether there'll be a resurgence of this virus and whether we'll have to shut down again. And while we'll have learned from what we did previously, I think it will, each time we do that, it will be more and more devastating to cancer research and even to patient care for our cancer patients. I mean, a lot of them had to defer treatments and defer visits uh, because of COVID-19. And so the impact is, goes beyond the lives lost directly to the virus, but also to lives affected by the fact that their care had to be deferred. Probably I should leave more on a message of hope perhaps, which is that I think this will hopefully renew enthusiasm to support research by our government. And it already appears that with this year's NIH budget, there's more monies for biomedical research. And as we talked about, hopefully people see what pandemics can do, but what also great medicines and vaccines and therapeutics can do that more of our undergraduates and high school students will go into research and medicine. Yeah, we've certainly seen a great increase in the kinds of content and interest in the research that's being done and the patient care that's being done here at you know, Michigan Medicine you know, since the pandemic started. And I think the public is hungry for content and information about 
what our researchers are doing, what our doctors are doing, trying to figure out this pandemic. And so um, perhaps some new interest has been sparked in biomedicine through all of this. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I do agree with you, as you brought up, it can sometimes seem like a black box. So the more chances we have to kind of explain it, I think that the better it is uh, for the community as well as for hopefully future physician scientists, scientists and healthcare providers. Great. Well, I really appreciate you taking some time to discuss this and uh, to share this, uh, your experiences more broadly with our local cancer community. It's always a pleasure, Ian. Thank you for listening. And tell us what you think of this podcast by rating and reviewing us. If you have suggestions for additional topics, you can send them to cancercenter at med.umich.edu or message us on Twitter at umrogocancer. You can continue to explore the three P's of cancer by visiting rogocancercenter.org. Mm-hmm.